You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 30th day of June 2023, with episode 447 of The Corbett Report podcast, Further Down, the David Kelly rabbit hole. Yes, it is June of 2023, on the doorstep of July 2023, which I'm sure my listeners will know by now marks the 20th anniversary of the death of Dr. David Kelly. And if you were around at the time and following the dinosaur media, as I was at that time, you will probably remember this story, at the very least, from the coverage that it did certainly receive at the time. It was a large story about famed UN weapons inspector Dr. David Kelly, who was discovered dead on Harrowdown Hill near his home in Oxfordshire in England on July 17th of 2003. And a public inquiry was announced into that death the very next day by the UK government. And that inquiry eventually returned the verdict that Dr. Kelly had indeed taken his own life, committing suicide by swallowing 29 coproximal tablets and slashing his ulnary artery with a pruning knife that he had had since youth. And the official verdict was that this was likely done due to the stress that Dr. Kelly was under after having been outed as a source for a BBC report on the sexed-up dossier that had been released in the build-up to the Iraq War that made the UK government's case for that Iraq War. Now, as I say, you probably are familiar with various aspects of the story if you were around at the time and following the news, because it did receive some attention. And if you did, then, well, here's the 60-70 second summary of what most people at least in dinosaur media world, would know about those events. The death of Dr. David Kelly continues to make headlines. It's now being called a textbook case of suicide by the pathologist who examined his body. Nicholas Hunt said he found no signs of murder during eight hours of study. The former weapons inspector was identified as the source of a story claiming the then Labour government had sexed up its dossier on Iraq's supposed weapons of mass destruction. His body was found in woods near his Oxfordshire home a week afterwards. The Hutton report concluded Dr Kelly had taken his own life through a combination of painkillers and cuts to his left wrist. But that has been discredited by a number of experts who are calling for another examination of the case. They argue the wrist wound was unlikely to be life-threatening unless Kelly had had a blood clotting deficiency. However, Nicholas Hunt has said there were thick clots of blood inside the sleeve and soaked into the ground. He also laid into the previous government for the way it treated Dr Kelly. The current most senior law officer, Dominic Grieve, has indicated that he is prepared to intervene over the controversy but would only consider fresh evidence before going down the route of a new inquest. Yes, that's pretty much how the public remembers this story. The general public, that is. And if you go to such bastions of truthiness as Wikipedia, you'll, you can find the bare bones of David Kelly's biography, in which it is mentioned quite prominently front and centre in the first paragraph that, of course, Dr. David Kelly, as we all remember, was a UN 
weapons inspector. Specifically, he had been appointed to the United Nations Special Commission, UNSCOM, UNSCOM, in 1991, and served as its chief weapons inspector in Iraq, leading 10 missions to that country between May of 91 and December of 98. And then he was also involved with the UNSCOM's successor organization, the United Nations Monitoring, Verification, and Inspection Commission, leading several of their missions to Iraq, um, investigating Iraq's anthrax production program at the Salman Pak facility and a biological weapons program being run at al Hakum, And it was in that context that the public knew about Dr. Kelly and his work because, of course, this became the controversy surrounding his death. What was his death about? Why was he committing suicide? Oh, because he had been outed as a source for a BBC report by Andrew Gilligan, a BBC reporter, about the UK government's sexed-up dossier, the dossier that was used to justify, or at least in part to justify, the UK government's involvement uh, in the Iraq war. Uh, Specifically, the claim that Saddam Hussein was a not only holder of biological weapons that amounted to weapons of mass destruction, but that he could deploy them in 45 minutes. And Andrew Gilligan's report in 2003 was the revelation that, in fact, that 45-minute claim, which, of course, stole the headlines at the time and became a huge part of the push towards war in Iraq, at least in the UK, was itself a essentially a made-up claim that had been uh, inserted by the uh, Downing Street Director of Communications, Alistair Campbell. Now, that became a source of contention, and given UK laws, uh, there was an attempt to force Andrew Gilligan to give up his source for that particular claim. Who said that Alistair Campbell inserted that 45-minute claim in that dossier, which was officially not a UK government dossier, the UK government was not involved in production of it? Who is saying Alistair Campbell, the Downing Street Director of Communications, was trying to force a false claim in that? And the... Gilligan never would confirm, but it was determined that the source for that claim was Dr. David Kelly. And that became a point of contention. Kelly got brought in to the proceedings that were going on uh, grilling Gilligan, and then they started grilling Kelly. And we've all seen the footage of Dr. Kelly giving his testimony before Parliament there, being grilled, being outed as a source for this claim about Campbell and... Uh, He was on the hot seat and they were grilling him and, oh, but you're being used as a fall guy and all of this. And all of the attention, all of the stress was apparently too much and Dr. Kelly killed himself. At least that's what they want you to believe. And as my listeners will know, if they have followed me for any length of time, uh, that is, of course, hokum. Easily demonstrable hokum. And I will not regurgitate and go through all of the evidence as to why that is hokum all over again. There is Plenty of that in the archives at CorporateReport.com. Search David Kelly on my site and you will find the numerous audio and video reports that I've filed on this case over the years, including a GRTV background around the subject, an interview with Dr. David Halpin, who is leading the push for a coroner's inquest, not a public inquiry, which is a judicial or a, a review proceeding that is appointed, a political appointed Um, inquiry, which then gets to write a report with recommendations and has no judicial and legal teeth to it whatsoever. No, a coroner's inquest, which was a push that was being led in 2009, 10, 11, as more and more details of the Kelly deaths started to come out. 
Uh, Dr. David Halpin was one of the people helping to push that. I've interviewed him. I, uh, of course, also had an episode of Requiem for the Suicided on Dr. David Kelly going through all of this information that I will exhort and bring to your attention. You may have seen it was just posted as a flashback episode just this past weekend, so hopefully you're familiar with this matter. But just to go over the bare details of the case and why the murder, uh, sorry, the suicide story is self-evidently nonsense. We can look at it from a number of angles. The first level of analysis, admittedly not persuasive in and of itself, is the uh, the the knowledge and information that uh, the supposed method of suicide, uh, which was a slit wrist, a slit ulnary artery that was apparently slit with a pruning knife, combined with a, a, an ingestion of coproximal tablets, combined with the discovery, the inquiry later discovered that, oh, Dr. Kelly had an undiagnosed coronary artery disease that made him particularly prone to exsanguination. Well, uh, that, uh, even from a first level of analysis, does not hold water because neither coproximal tablets nor slit ulnary arteries, slit wrist, um, are particularly effective ways of suicide, and they are not generally employed by men. Um, not, uh, not making this up, go look it up. Women are three times more likely to attempt suicide, but two to four times less likely to actually commit suicide because men tend to use hanging and self-inflicted gunshot wounds and jumping from tall buildings as suicide methods. Women tend to use self-poisoning and, uh, slitting wrists, which, as many doctors will attest, including ones that have been interviewed with regards to Dr. Kelly's case in particular, the slit wrist is the classic cry for help because it is so infamously ineffective as a means of committing suicide. Um, but beyond that first order analysis, which I admit is not persuasive in and of itself, there are all of the pieces of evidence that point to the fact that this is not uh, what David Kelly uh, did on July 17th, 2003. For example, we have David Bartlett, the paramedic who found uh, pronounced Dr. Kelly dead at the scene, who had claimed that his body, uh, Kelly's body, had obviously been moved and confirmed that there was surprisingly little blood at the scene, saying, quote, I've seen more blood at a nosebleed than I saw there. Um, he also said that uh, as soon as the body was found, the police threw a blackout around the scene, and he was even banned from speaking to his own control room over radio, the first time that that had ever happened in his entire career. Um, well, okay, well, did he swallow tablets then? Maybe it was the, maybe it was the pro, pro, coproximal tablets that were the cause. Well, not only did he have a known aversion to swallowing pills of any sort, so the idea of him downing 29 coproximal tablets is unlikely in and of itself, but also, well, certainly toxicology will handle this. There must be blood samples that must have shown the, uh, the constituent breakdown elements of the coproximal in his system, right? Well, not so fast. If you go and listen to my Dr. David Halpin interview from over a decade ago now, you will hear him explain how of the five blood samples that one of the doctors in, that was working um, with the Hutton inquiry into Dr. David Kelly's death uh, testified. There were five blood samples that he had seen and worked with, um, but actually only four were ever mentioned in the Hutton inquiry report, so one of them seems to have gone missing. Uh, only one of them were actually labeled, which is a massive breach of basic protocol with regards to forensics, and uh, one of those blood samples, NCH47, found the constituent breakdown elements of coproximal. Interestingly, one of the constituent elements was there in detectable quantities. One was in almost undetectable quantities. And even the detectable quantities 
of the coproximal breakdown elements that were found in the blood were found in con uh, concentrations 400% smaller than the amounts that were associated with any known coproximal uh, poisoning death. So uh, that doesn't hold water. And oh, by the way, that was only one of the four or five blood samples that showed the, 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 uh, the, the breakdown elements of coproximal. And beyond that, oh, there was no fingerprints found on the blister packs of coproximal tablets that were found with Dr. Kelly. So no evidence that he took them at all, really, except for one lab result from one blood sample that was questionable in and of itself. There were also no fingerprints found on the pruning knife that he supposedly used to slit his own wrist, but even that has problems, as one of his closest confidants came out in the weeks and months following uh, the news of his death to testify. No, he had a, uh, a severe difficulty using his right hand for any strenuous activity because of a painful injury that he had sustained to his elbow. So he was, uh, his right hand was in and of itself not very effective and certainly not effective enough to cut down to the ulnary artery with a pruning knife, which he would have, given the way the blade was constructed, had to use in the opposite direction, cutting up, um, which in and of itself makes it even less likely that he was to do that. Um, how about the not only the paramedic who arrived at the scene, but the person who discovered his body testifying that, well, his body had changed position between the time the body was found and the time it was uh, the police report was filed because the person who found his body testified that she and, and swore to the fact that she found the body propped against the tree, head and shoulders propped against a tree. The police report dis, uh, uh, officially says that his body was found flat on the field. Um, there was... Uh, as has been stated by the paramedic and by others, not uh, almost no blood at all found at the scene. Um, there was the mysterious case of the helicopter, which landed at the scene just 90 minutes after the discovery of the body. We only know about this helicopter because the flight logs of it were eventually released uh, uh, due to a Freedom of Information Act request, which showed that, yes, there was a helicopter that was deployed. It landed at the scene less than 90 minutes after the discovery of the body. It stayed at the scene for five minutes before taking off. But because of the heavy redactions, we don't know who was on that helicopter or its official mission. It has never been officially explained what that helicopter was doing at the scene, who it was dropping off, or what it was picking up. But anyway, that was part of the story. Um, there, are, there are many, many, many other aspects to this. As I say, I've covered them before. It is self-evident, once you examine the evidence for yourself, that Dr. Kelly was not, did not commit suicide, he was suicided. And as I say, I've had entire podcasts on that in the past, and those podcasts were created at that time in 2010-11 when there was significant momentum towards the holding of a coroner's inquest, something with real legal judicial teeth to it that could come to a definitive criminal indictment, perhaps, of someone uh, responsible for the death, or at least a determination, a, a definitive uh, medical determination of the cause of death, but because of the UK laws, it was a, a, a coroner's inquest could only be declared with the approval of the Attorney General of England and Wales, who at that time was Dominic Grieve, and as I'm sure you're probably also aware, it was in July of 2011 that Dominic Grieve decided, weighing all of the evidence, taking a look at all of the factors involved, there would be no inquest. Because of the interest in the political issues that formed the backdrop to Dr. Kelly's death, a significant number of people have raised concerns about his death, 
and the process used to investigate it, and have called for a new inquest to be set up. At this stage, only the High Court can order an inquest, and then only on an application made by me or by another with my consent. I was asked last year to make such an application and have since then been provided with a large amount of information which is said to support the case for an inquest. Mr Speaker, having given all the material that's been sent to me the most careful consideration, I have concluded that the evidence that Dr Kelly took his own life is overwhelmingly strong. Further, there is nothing I've seen that supports any allegation that Dr Kelly was murdered or that his death was the subject of any kind of conspiracy or cover-up. In my view, no purpose would be served by my making an application to the High Court for an inquest, and indeed I have no reasonable basis for doing so. There is no possibility that at an inquest, a verdict other than suicide would be returned. And with that pronouncement, the fluoride-addled, MSM-addicted zombies around the world could breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that they wouldn't have to trouble their pretty little heads with any more of these silly conspiracy theories surrounding the death of Dr. David Kelly. And after all, the BBC could assure them of that fact, because after having embroiled him in this whole sexed-up dossier affair in the first place, they could then spit on his grave by dredging up from the depths esteemed professor of psychiatry Peter Tyrer for their Conspiracy Files program on Dr. Kelly's death, to opine on Dr. Kelly's mental state. I mean, after all, you only have to look at the emails that he was sending in the days and weeks before his suicide. On his last morning alive, Dr. Kelly sent emails to friends saying he'd soon be back in Baghdad. Is that really the action of someone considering suicide? Professor Peter Tyra has studied Dr. Kelly's emails. It looked as though the ones on the morning of the 17th were rather stereotyped, whereas the earlier emails that he sent in July were much more informative and there were more sort of warms coming through them. And I think that there was a certain detachment of those emails on the morning of the 17th of July, which made me think that he'd already decided that he was going to take his own life when he was writing those. Why do I get the distinct impression that if I were ever to be found with a slit wrist on Harrowdown Hill, that the BBC or some other propaganda organization would deploy Dr. Tyrer, Professor Tyrer, against me to say, well, you know, that last... That last podcast that James released on the morning of his death, it, it lacked a certain warmth. It was, it was rather stereotyped. <laughs> and thus, it's, of course, it was very evident that he was going to commit suicide. But wait, what was, what was the name of James's last podcast episode? I, they're about to kill me. Don't believe it. I'm not suicidal. <laughs> but that's not important because that, hey, what was the content of Dr. Kelly's actual last email. Hey, Mr. Pro Professor Tyrer, you've, you've studied his emails uh, for the BBC Conspiracy Files. Why don't, why don't you tell us what that last email was about? Oh, um, hmm, what, uh, well, let's take this from that well-known conspiracy source, the Sunday Mail, which re reported on July 20th of 2023. Dark actors playing games. 
Death of a Fall Guy, How Suicide Scientist Described Tormentors in Final Email to Friend, which notes that suicide scientist, putting it right there in the first opening words, Dr. David Kelly warned a friend that dark actors were working against him just hours before his death. Dr. Kelly revealed his fears shortly before killing himself, killing himself, after being dragged into the row over the government's justification for war in Iraq. In an email to American author Judy Miller, sent just before he left his home for the last time, he referred to many dark actors playing games. But according to Miller, Dr. Kelly gave no indication he was depressed or planning to take his own life. Anyway, but don't worry, don't don't let that actual facts of what he was saying or Doc, or Judy, Judy Miller's uh, characterization of that email, don't let that trouble you. No, 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 no. Just put it right there in the first opening words and in the headline, suicide scientist. He killed himself, I tell ya. Anyway, huh? That's kind of an interesting little detail, isn't it? Ju Judy Miller. I know, I know that name rings a bell. All right, yeah, the whole... Iraq reporting, New York Times weapons of mass destruction thing, kind of a bit scandal. But, you know, what What else was Judy Miller reporting on? Like, uh, maybe, maybe one week before 9-11? Oh, that's right. September 4th, 2001, front page story, New York Times. Next to old rec hall, a germ-making plant. Quote, in a nondescript mustard-colored building that once was once a military recreation hall and barber shop... The Pentagon has built a germ factory that could make enough lethal microbes to wipe out entire cities. Dot, dot, dot. Dr. Davis and other officials said the Defense Department's lawyers had carefully reviewed the project to ensure that it did not violate the Biological Weapons Treaty or American law. Because it was purely defensive and never made deadly germs, it was both legal and appropriate, he and others said, etc., etc. Yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah, I kind of forgot about that. That's been memory-holed rather effectively. Yes, one week before 9-11, the revelation that, oh, yeah, America kind of does have a secret bioweapons program in which they are weaponizing pathogens that could wipe out entire cities. And it's, you know, technically actually illegal under the Biological Weapons Treaty, but, you know, details, schmeetails, it's defensive. Don't worry about it, guys. Yeah, that story, which kind of got sidelined and didn't get really followed up on much because of the whole, oh, yeah, 9-11 thing. And then there was the whole anthrax thing. Oh, my God, what Pandora's box have we just opened here with regards to the David Kelly case? I mean, how does Judy Miller and her, what, what she was writing about there, and what does she have to do with David Kelly in the first place? Why, is, why are they corresponding at all? What's going on here? I thought David Kelly was a, was a weapons inspector. Oh, that's right. I guess he was working with anthrax and, and Iraq's biological weapons program. So maybe that kind of connection. Or maybe the fact that the fact that David Kelly was a weapons inspector was actually kind of secondary to his main role. What was his main role? What was his actual position? What was his job? What did he do? Oh, that's right. D Dr. David Kelly was the chief microbiologist at Porton Down. Porton Down. Now, I know I don't have to explain this to my regular readers and listeners and viewers, but in case you are new to all of this, Porton Down is kind of an important complex in the biological weapons creation world. And uh, yeah, Fort Detrick you've probably heard of. Well, you should also have heard of Porton Down and its connection to, well, a lot of important 
bioweapon stories of recent years, including, remember that whole Novichok incident that happened uh, just miles away from Porton Down, actually. Oh, and Porton Down had Novichok samples and they were working with it? Anyway, don't worry your heads about that. Yes, Dr. Kelly was not primarily a weapons inspector. He was primarily the chief microbiologist at Porton Down, working on the UK's version of what Judy Miller was talking about in the US, the secret illegal bioweapons program where they were weaponizing various materials for use uh, military purposes. Uh, yeah, that, that seems like it's a pretty important factor in all of this, doesn't it? But it's interesting that time and vague reporting has kind of made in the public consciousness. Dr. Kelly was about weapons inspection. He was about Iraq. He was about their weapons of mass destruction program. He had nothing to do with the UK's version of that, despite the fact that he had top security clearance as part of, obviously, his role as the chief microbiologist at Porton Down. Not only top security clearance uh, possible in the UK government, but also, according to sources, in the US uh, national security framework via his connections with the CIA. Kind of an important part of the story, don't you think? And yes, this is the further down the rabbit hole part of the Dr. Kelly story that we have to explore when it comes to his death, because there are some deeper questions surrounding his death. As I pointed to, as I hope you saw in that, either in the recent flashback or when it originally aired, my Requiem for the Suicided edition of uh, on K David Kelly and his death, I did, at the end of that, uh, episode. I did kind of gesture to the fact that, well, okay, so what did he really, why was he killed? Uh, okay, he was murdered. This was not a suicide. But why? Was it really to shut him up about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq claim and sexed up dossier? That had already occurred. That was in the past. Yeah, maybe they wanted to make a example of him about whistleblowers or something, but really they're going to kill him over that? Or maybe he had other information that he was privy to that maybe he was about to go public with that maybe they didn't want him to go public with. Well, what kind of information did Dr. David Kelly have regarding biological weapons programs? Well, we don't have to speculate about that. We can confirm that those details from several sources. So let's pick up the story with a character that I hope you're familiar with. I've mentioned him a couple of times, but let's go into a little bit more depth. Back in the 1980s, of course, and before, obviously, but in the 1980s, obviously the Soviet Union was running their own biological weapons program because, of course, pretty much every government that has the capability to do so is working feverishly on biological weapons, despite the biological weapons treaty that totally bans that guy, except, you know, for defensive purposes. Well, of course, the Soviets were playing around with that as well, and there was a well-known uh, anthrax leak from Compound 19 in the Soviet Union that resulted in um, multiple deaths, etc. So, yes, certainly the Soviets were playing around with biological weapons, including Vladimir Pasechnik, who was a microbiologist specifically in the Soviet germ warfare program, weaponizing such materials as anthrax and other biological agents, and he defected to Britain in 1989. Pretty big deal, of course. Not at the height of the Cold War, at the end of the Cold War, but still, in when the Cold War was still officially on, uh, uh, Pesechnik defected to the UK. So he comes over, he is debriefed at Porton Down, and interestingly enough, he is given a rather crazy proposition, but hey, why not? Apparently, the UK government offers him the ability to create his own company 
which he would base and stage at Porton Down, using their facilities to conduct research into anthrax antidotes. Okay, interesting. So, again, fresh off the boat defector from the Soviet Union, our arch enemy rivals, they do a debriefing or a series of debriefings with him, and suddenly they're offering, hey, why don't you come into the heart of our national security complex and start playing around with totally defensive research about anthrax, guys. We, you're an expert on weaponizing anthrax, so uh, you can work on antidotes, yeah. And, wait, when did Vladimir Pesechnik die? Oh, that's right! Exactly as the anthrax attacks hysteria was raging in the United States in late 2001. Is exactly when Vladimir Pesechnik died of, uh, stroke? Question mark? Highly suspicious and interesting character with a highly suspicious death, but what does this have to do with the price of tea in China, or more to the purposes of today's exploration, what does this have to do with Dr. David Kelly? Well, hmm, okay, so he defected from the Soviet Union, and uh, presumably talking to the chief microbiologist at Porton Down when he defects and he's getting debriefed, right? Well, we don't have to speculate about that. No, yes, absolutely. David Kelly debriefed Vladimir Pesechnik. In 1989, as the Cold War was ending, a top Soviet bioweapons scientist who worked with Alibek defected to the West. Vladimir Pesechnik was debriefed by David Kelly on behalf of British intelligence. That debriefing is extremely interesting because for the very first time, Britain and America became aware of what the Soviet Union had been doing about biological warfare. After sharing his knowledge about weaponizing germs with David Kelly and other debriefers, Pesechnik got an attractive offer. David Kelly said, look, why don't we set up a company for you where you can do work inside the microbiology department in uh, Porton Down. If you can imagine the difficulty of a top-secret government department letting a former enemy into work in their midst, it shows the power of David Kelly. Pesechnik began working on an antidote for anthrax. Then days after the U.S. letter attacks, the scientist died of an apparent stroke. I think there has been an urgent need for some time for us to look again at the death of Mr. Pashetnik because what happened to him was perhaps a forerunner of what would happen to Kelly. Author Gordon Thomas joins the skeptics who refuse to accept that Pesechnik had died of natural causes. So let's get this story straight. In 1989, at the tail end of the Cold War, a top Soviet microbiologist working in the incredibly top secret and, of course, completely illegal biopreparate Soviet agency, the agency dedicated to the development of biological warfare weapons, waltzes into the British Embassy in Paris and turns himself in. I'm a defector. He gets shuttled off to England, uh, stored at an MI6 safe house, and debriefed by David Kelly, who learns all the details about the Soviet biological warfare program. David Kelly then offers him space 
in the heart of the UK's military biowarfare establishment at Porton Down for a facility to start his own company, where he works happily until his sudden death days after the anthrax attacks in the U.S. Nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see here. Oh, maybe, maybe there is something to see here. Yes, I think that the death of Vladimir, the life and death of Vladimir Pesechnik does deserve further scrutiny. So I'll give you a couple of resources that can help you along the task of discovering more about this very interesting story. The first of which is an archived webpage announcing the creation of Regma Biotechnologies Limited, the company that he co-founded with Casey Harlington, working there at Porton Down, specifically the Center for Applied Microbiology and Research at the UK Department of Health in Salisbury, which is a very interesting way of describing Porton Down, which has gone through many different names over the years. But at any rate, uh, this page has information about the work that they were engaged in, and specifically the 20th of February 2000 uh, announcement uh, that Casey Harlington and Vladimir Pesechnik announced the formation of Regma Biotechnologies Limited. The company has been formed to develop a platform technology for new drugs to treat diseases caused by microbial pathogens, particularly their antibiotic-resistant variants. Interesting work, and then he suddenly dies of a stroke. No further investigation needed. He gets a he gets an obituary notice in the paper, but that's about all, right? Maybe not. And well, for one thing, what what does his family think about this story? Well, we could turn to an article from 2018 to find out that the Soviet scientist who defected to Britain to warn of his country's biological weapon threat, quote, was assassinated in the UK by Moscow in chilling echo of Skripal case his son fears, which, of course, the style at the time there in 2018 was to have hysteria over the Russian assassination squads that were roaming the UK, obviously, uh, and had been revealed to the world in the Skripal case. I have had a lot more to say about the Skripal case and what was really going on there over the years. Search Skripal in the Corporate Report search bar for more on that. But at any rate, the meat and potatoes of this story is a quote from uh, Vladimir Pesechnik's son, uh, living in Britain, obviously. Quote, officially his cause of death was a stroke, but I spoke to doctors and they said his brain was severely damaged and they had never seen a stroke like it. I spoke to specialists in different countries and they said certain chemical substances could cause a stroke. All right. So, of course, as I say, in the wake of the Skripal case, this comes to light. Of course, they're thrusting microphones in uh, Vladimir Pesechnik's son's face, probably, presumably for the first time, in his entire life because the Pesechnik case had been quietly swept under the rug until it was politically convenient to say, look, it was Putin, I tell you. Uh, well, I, I do think that the very untimely death of Vladimir Pesechnik and the manner in which he died, it absolutely does raise very clear alarm bells and suspicion bells. But hmm, let's see what's the more likely case, that there were some crack Russian assassination operatives who snuck into the very heart of the UK's top-secret military biowarfare program at Porton Down in order to assassinate someone working there. And the UK never even batted an eyelid, never even raised the possibility, never even talked about it until, you know, two decades later, and then it's kind of floated in the media in a type of cutout operation. Or maybe he was killed by someone within that UK biowarfare establishment. No, that couldn't... Po well, yes, it absolutely could be the case. And given the line of work that Pesechnik was involved in, and the very, 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 very many, very interesting, mysterious 
suicides and accidents that surround people working in that particular line of work, more on which later, I think it is highly likely that Pesechnik's death was not of natural causes. But at any rate, whatever we make of the Pesechnik case, it certainly did give David Kelly the chance to pose as the crusading cold warrior and to burnish his credentials by engaging in the world's first ever biological weapons inspections. Yes, that's right. Although most people at the time uh, believed that the first ever biological weapons inspections were taking place in Iraq in 1991. That was the first time this had ever been done. No, actually it was not. Um, because this uh, those inspections had been preceded by at the time, completely classified, they weren't revealed to the public until many years later, the Soviets had come up with a tripartite deal with the UK and the US to allow inspectors into their biopreparate agency and then to inspect the US biological warfare program. And Kelly was involved in both ends of those inspections, both as an inspector on the first ever biological weapons inspections in the Soviet Union, and then as an advisor to the US when the Soviets came over to inspect their program. So that's a whole other story in and of itself. There are more details on that that you can read in various places. But uh, as I say, it certainly allowed Kelly to burnish his credentials. He's the cold warrior fighting for the West against those evil Soviets. A propaganda line that he continued to hold right up until the end. In fact, his David Kelly's last interview, if you search those magic search terms, you will find an interview that was actually conducted by an Australian interviewer that was then bought up by a British media company just weeks before Kelly's death that uh, was then recut and marketed as David Kelly's last interview that's all about how Kelly was this crusading warrior who, who was able to really get into the heart of the Soviet biowarfare program, that evil, illegal, rusky Soviet biowarfare program that was totally horrible. And, of course, the documentary is also all about how the Americans didn't have any biowarfare program, and, and it was all, it was all the, the, those evil Ruskies. So, yeah, right up until the end, Kelly was holding the propaganda line. The discovery by David Kelly and the rest of the team of the Soviet biological warfare facilities had stunned Western intelligence and politicians, handing them a crucial advantage in dealing with their Soviet counterparts. As part of the secret inspections deal, the Soviets were now allowed to inspect American facilities. Kanachan Alibekov was part of the team, and what he discovered changed his life. I suspected we wouldn't find something big. But what was absolutely shocking to me, we found nothing. And it was, uh, to me, it was kind of complete change of my mind. I thought, yes, and now, now I had enough in my life. The scales of Cold War paranoia fell from Ali Bekov's eyes. There had been no secret American bio-warfare program. Ali Bekov had been tricked into living a lie. I spent 17 years in my life just doing first unnecessary work, and not legitimate work for a physician. And it was the time when I decided, yes, I, I'm fed up. I'm, I'm leaving this place. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, 
the vast biopreparat system was dismantled. Sergei Popov followed Pesechnik and Dalibekov to America. Today, he has profound regrets over his work at biopreparat. The Soviet scientists now work for private American pharmaceutical companies. But even as the Soviet threat receded, a new danger emerged, a danger which at the time few took seriously. In a sense, the United Kingdom and the United States were almost myopic about the Soviet Union. That was regarded as being the major threat, and other countries were not considered. And of course, at that, particularly in the 1980s, particularly in the Middle East, other countries were beginning to develop chemical weapons and biological weapons. They were not seriously considered at that time. They were thought to be just small programs, not substantial, not likely to be the threat that the Soviet Union would present. Of course, the perceptions now, the year 2003, are quite different. Right you are, Mr. Kelly. Perceptions certainly were different about the threat of biological weapons in 2002, 2003, the lead-up to the war in Iraq. But why? Oh, it's because of the pronouncements of people like David Kelly for many, many, many years prior to that. Yes, it is interesting. It's an ironic fact that David Kelly becomes known for his last heroic act of whistleblowing by apparently telling Andrew Gilligan that the 45-minute claim in this sexed-up dossier had been inserted as a political measure, not as a scientific measure. Well, actually, I mean, as it turns out, David Kelly came forward to say, yes, I was the source, but they misquoted me. So he disavowed that claim once it was made public. But more to the point, it is important to keep in mind the fact that as the chief microbiologist at the somewhat privatized military biological lab at the heart of the UK military establishment, you better believe that every statement that David Kelly made to the media on and off record was vetted and approved. There was a tacit understanding between himself and whatever MI6 handlers he had, let alone the FCO, the uh, the foreign, uh, foreign office there in the UK government that was his nominal employers. But of course, he was working in spook world. He had many spook contacts, and he was uh, more or less an intelligent agent. He, not, I think, unemployed as an agent, but he was working in and with the spooks. And every statement that he made was carefully vetted and approved beforehand. It's just that some of the statements may have gotten misquoted or carried away. But it is important to understand that that particular controversy surrounding the supposed reason for David Kelly's supposed suicide is, if anything, certainly the exception that proves the rule in a career of fear-mongering about the evil biological weapons of the evil others, the Rus Ruskies and or the Iraqis. Because yes, as, as again, as I've pointed out, the only way that David Kelly is really remembered is as the, as the UN weapons inspector. Well, actually for UNSCOM, UNSCUM, as it was called by people in the UN bureaucracy who recognized that the UNSCUMmers were essentially setting the groundwork for the death, destruction, continuing sanctions, and ultimately the invasion of Iraq, um, the unscummers, uh, were absolutely feeding into that hype. And every, every piece of the puzzle that was constructed out of whole cloth, mostly to create this perception of the fear of the biological weapons program, was being fed into by people like David Kelly. So don't take my word for that. Take David Kelly's word for that. Uh, he wrote on the eve of the Iraq invasion he wrote an interesting editorial that was anonymous at the time that it was published, 
but was later de-anonymized after his death. But yes, uh, and it was published on The Observer, um, only regime change will avert the threat, was the headline pull quote that they used for that op-ed, in which he starts by writing, in the past week, Iraq has begun destroying its stock of Al-Samud II missiles, missiles that have a range greater than the UN-mandated limit of 150 kilometers, this is presented to the international community as evidence of Pre President Saddam Hussein's compliance with United Nations weapons inspectors. But Iraq always gives up material once it was in its interest to do so. Iraq has spent the past 30 years building up an arsenal of weapons of mass destruction. Although the current threat presented by Iraq militarily is modest, both in terms of conventional and unconventional weapons, it has never given up its intent to develop and stockpile such weapons for both military and terrorist use. Trust me, bro. Uh, today, Iraq shows superficial cooperation with the inspectors, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, no... Kelly never strayed very far from the party line, and it, you'd be hard-pressed to find any statements that he made, certainly in, on the record, that go against it. There are some statements that he made pushing back on some of the, uh, the, for example, the mobile weapons labs. He was anonymously quoted at the time, later confirmed at the Hutton Inquiry he was the source for a statement that I think was published in the Times uh, after Colin Powell's speech to the UN saying that the mobile labs are for hydrogen gas production, not for biological weapons. But, as I say... Nothing that he said was uh, was going against his what his handlers would have allowed him to say, um, at least up until the point at which you find him dead, in which case you have to wonder. But having said that, um, it was a long, long-storied history and often a dark one that David Kelly was involved in. So what other weird, shady underworld activities um, does David Kelly pop David Kelly's name pop up with regard to well we can take a look for example for from a uh, an article penned by Salim Muwakul in May of 2003 Biowar and the apartheid legacy talking about a, a story that was breaking at that time um, they cite the Washington Post on this but ultimately this story actually broke from the Truth and Reconciliation Committee that was held in South Africa after the fall of the apartheid government, it started to come out and they started to find documents and start to interview witnesses about a top secret program called Project Coast that had operated in the South African government from 1981 to 1993 under the auspices of the South African National Defense Force. And as they explain here, uh, Voter Bassan, the man who directed South Africa's clandestine bioweapons program, spoke candidly to federal officials of global shopping sprees for pathogens and equipment, of plans for epidemics to be sown in black communities, and of cigarettes and letters that were laced with anthrax. The Post said Bassan revealed the development of a novel anthrax strain unknown to U.S. US officials, a kind of stealth anthrax that Bassan claimed could fool tests to use to detect the disease. The top-secret po program that Bassan directed was called Project Coast, and it lasted from 81 to 93. The South African National Defense Force created it at a time when the white minority regime was under increasing threat by indigenous black South Africans. Don Goosen, the former uh, director of Project Coast's Biological Research Division, told the Post he was ordered by Bassan to develop ways to, quote, suppress population growth among blacks and to, quote, search for a black bomb, a biological weapon, that would select targets based on skin color. And it goes on in this report to say that the 1999 BMA British Medical Association study 
about the, into this uh, biowarfare was provoked in part by a 1998 study in a story in the London Sunday Times alleging that Israel already had developed a genetically specific weapon. Unnamed South African sources, according to a report cited by the Times, say Israeli scientists have used some of the South African research in trying to develop an ethnic bullet against Arabs. So there's that whole story, but, well, what does David Kelly have to do with any of this? I mean, this is all South African stuff, right? It's not like he had actual contact with Voter Basson during this time period, did Oh, wait. During the 1980s, apartheid South Africa had started up a top-secret germ warfare program called Project Coast. Headed by Voter Basson, later dubbed Dr. Death by the media, one of its goals was to develop germ weapons for use against its black population. Officially, the white regime was shunned by the world community. But in London, it emerged that British MP Norman Baker was on the same trail as Dresch. He had uncovered evidence of unofficial links between David Kelly and Project Coast. There were connections between the British government and the apartheid regime in South Africa, and there's an open question as to how much the British government at the time, the Thatcher government, knew about Project Coast, uh, whether they were receiving any information that was derived from Project Coast, and whether, in fact, they were even supporting it um, surreptitiously. It was clear that there was some involvement going back some time between David Kelly and Wouterbassen. Did you know David Kelly? Did you have a relationship with him? I met Mr. Kelly on three occasions, three or four occasions, uh, from a purely, pure information exchange point, point of view. Did you ever meet him in Portland now? That I can't answer, uh, but we did meet him on a few occasions. You were able to visit Portendown, Port Detroit? Yes, yes, we did that. I wonder if you could talk about that. No, I wouldn't like to, but I mean, you know, the next question that I get asked is who, who arranged it and why and what and where, and then, uh, you know, I already have hassles with the UK and the American gov governments. I don't need any more, thank you. So, at least according to Voter Bassan, and we don't, as far as I know, have any documentary confirmation of this, but what kind of documentary confirmation could we expect to find at this point? At any rate, according to the person who was heading up Project Coast, he did have multiple meetings with David Kelly, and he did visit Down and Fort Detrick, although he won't confirm that that's where he met David Kelly. Anyway, very interesting, and uh, while we're on the subject, race-specific bioweapons. Where, where have I heard that concept before? Oh, that's right. Rebuilding America's Defenses, project for the New American Century, infamously released one year before 9-11. And as everyone in the Corbett Report audience will know by now, of course, is what is it, page 52 or thereabouts, where they talk about the catastrophic catalyzing event, like a new Pearl Harbor that would be needed to galvanize public opinion to support uh, the transformation of America's 
defenses uh, that the entire document is calling for. Well, what kind of transformation? What are the specifics of that? Well, scroll down to page 60 and you get to hear about control of the sea and upgrading the Navy and cyberspace fighting and information systems, etc., etc., and advanced forms of biological warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biological warfare from the realm of terror to a politically useful tool. Well, there you go. The PNAC Zionist neocons there in the heart of the American military government establishment there in 2000, right before they implement their agenda in 2001, talking about race-specific bioweapons that they may have known a thing or two about, given their links and Fort Dietrich's links to Project Coast, and oh yeah, things that were being gleaned and perhaps fed to and or fed from sources like David Kelly. Obviously, they're at the heart of the British military biowarfare establishment. So, Again, some interesting links. There are many, many other interesting chapters and rabbit holes in the David Kelly career and legacy that somehow have been more or less memory-hold, even in the alternative media, when we talk about David Kelly and his death. Perhaps, given that we are approaching the 20th anniversary, it is time to expand that conversation about what David Kelly's legacy really was and what he was really involved in. And I guess this brings us back to the point. Okay, yes. David Kelly was murdered. That is not news to anyone in my audience at any rate, and probably not many people in the general public. I think before there were internet memes as they exist today, I think if if they had existed back in 2003, David Kelly didn't kill himself would have been a meme. Because I certainly, even at that time, even living completely firmly two feet in normie world and getting all my information from dinosaur media and this new internet thing that's coming along a little bit as well, I, I, I think everyone smelt something very, very funny with the David Kelly death. And uh, I didn't know many people who believed, oh yeah, suicide, no problem, no question. Yeah, inquiry, don't worry, Hutton has made his pronouncement. No, it was an early example of that phenomenon. Epstein didn't kill himself, Kelly didn't kill himself, right? But why? What was it really about? And I think that was that moment of aporia that that we were left in at the end of the Requiem for the Suicided edition of this podcast a decade ago when we were exploring this issue originally. What was it really about? It, was it really about the 45-minute claim in the sexed-up dossier? By the time that Kelly died, that was already yesterday's news, quite literally, or very close to literally. Um, and it was not going to have ongoing political effects of ma- mammoth proportions. Yes, it was a conversation, but that wasn't the core of Kelly's secrets. We could think, just from what we've seen so far, just skimming the surface of Kelly's career and legacy, that he might have had some other secrets that might have pertained and been important. So why? Why kill him in that manner at that time? What is the point of that? Who had the means, motive, and opportunity for it? The Ruskies? Mm, mm, uh, No. Uh, Well, obviously, we're looking at the British military biological warfare establishment, MI6, those types of players. And what was their concern? What was really going on? Well, this is an incredibly important part of this question, and it was one that was posed to me recently by Michael Welch, the host of the Global Research News Hour, when he had me on uh, quite recently. The link will be in the show notes to the full conversation um, when it is posted. Uh, at the time I'm recording this, it hasn't been posted yet, but we did have a lengthy conversation about the David Kelly case. And he asked me about this. Why? What was this about? Why was Kelly murdered? So the question then is, okay, who was interested 
in keeping this information suppressed? How do we know it? Who is capable of covering this up? Well, here's a couple of things that we do know. We know that David Kelly was exploring, shortly before his death, he was exploring with publishers in Oxford the possibility of publishing a book, uh, a tell-all, essentially, of his work. And uh, we know this from multiple reporting. There's there's uh, reports that have been made about this. Also, in that Anthrax War documentary, they have author Gordon Thomas on the record saying that he w- had been approached by David Kelly to help in the writing of such a book. And when pressed on the fact that, well, you're a you're a government employee, you are privy to the Official Secrets Act in the UK, you can't go public with this information. You know that, right? And Kelly apparently, according to this source, claimed that, well, I know that, but if I get someone else to write this book, then it won't be breaching the Official Secrets Act. At any rate, that's what was claimed to be saying. He was saying shortly before his death. Um, We also know that MI5, the British internal intelligence service, the FBI equivalent, if you will, in the UK, um, had sent a letter to David Kelly one week before his death, warning him essentially to keep his mouth shut. And we know this because that letter was found unopened, it must be admitted, unopened uh, amongst his mail when he when he died. Um, however, friends and sources that were quoted um, by the Daily Mail in their report on this, claimed that he absolutely did know the contents of that letter. This was not some sort of surprising thing to him. He had obviously, I am sure, received over-the-table and under-the-table warnings as well as the official formal letter that was actually written to him by MI5, specifically warning him not to spill the secrets. So, we know Kelly was very, very much involved in the biological weapons world of the 80s and 90s, And we know that he was being specifically threatened to keep his mouth shut. And we know that he was exploring the possibility of writing a book about his experiences. I think that has an awful lot to do with why we ended up, why he was discovered dead on Harrowdown Hill in July of 2003. I'll also add that uh, the uh, the commissioning editor of uh, One World Publication, which was was to print the book, um, uh, Victoria Rodham, had sent an email to uh, to Kelly just a, a week or so before he died. And it, it said, I quote, I think the time is right now more than ever for a title which addresses the relationship between government, policy, and war. I'm sure you would agree, unquote. And then they had a, a document also from uh, Ms. Rodham, which uh, talked a, a lot of mention of, of ethical bio-warfare and, and, other, and the corporations attached to bio-warfare and, and so on. So it, it basically looks as if this the whole secrets around bio-warfare is what's worth concealing. And, and I also should point out, it's not just um, Vladimir Paseshnik who died mysteriously, but you had other people like Benito Quay you know, uh, on just a few weeks on November 12th, I think, was found comatose in the street near the laboratory where he worked at the University of Miami Medical School and then died on the 6th. And then on November 16th, uh, Don C. Wiley vanished and has his abandoned rental car was found on the, uh, you know, the, on a bridge outside Memphis, Tennessee. And, you know, he, and, and there were like a whole string of other people and, you know, it seems to me like this, that bio, they're all microbiologists, world-class microbiologists. These 
all seem to point to the idea that this was, in, in effect, uh, protecting the, the, the reality of biowarfare from the prying eyes, which perhaps leads to the last three and a half years, right? I mean, would you say something like that is accurate or is this just a coincidence? No, I think this is absolutely accurate. And again, I, I don't mean to continue harping on this, but I just think that is interesting, this Anthrax War documentary that was made nearly two decades ago and broadcast on the CBC, did talk about, at that time, they were talking about the, the creation of biological weapons that could be used in biowarfare, the fact that this... Uh, uh, there was an entire industry developing around the idea of biosecurity in the wake of the anthrax uh, attacks of 2001. And they were talking about the billions of dollars that were slushing around through the system for various private contractors at that time um, in order to essentially create an entire industry around this. And it is interesting that, as you say, not just David Kelly, but a number of whistleblowers or potential whistleblowers, people who knew about the the inner workings of this nascent industry um, ended up dying um, shortly around the time of or shortly after the creation of this biosecurity feeding frenzy that was going on. So one example of an interesting connection that deserves further investigation is Bioport, as it was originally known, which was a company that uh, developed an anthrax vaccine that was being shoved in the arms of U.S. military personnel um, in the 1990s and up to 2000s, uh, in which uh, their anthrax vaccine was linked by many researchers to, uh, uh, for example, the Gulf War syndrome that many um, uh, veterans were suffering from and a whole host of health issues that were taking place. And the question, of course, at the time before the anthrax attacks of 2001 was why uh, why is the US government paying for these vaccines why are they trying to cover up the demonstrable ill health effects that these vaccines are producing what is the the, the real threat here do we think a vaccine is going to be effective against some sort of weaponized anthrax what is the point of this all of those questions of course went away in the event of the anthrax attacks, because suddenly there's a, obviously we need to have our troops vaccinated at, at the very least our troops and maybe the entire U.S. population and maybe the entire global population vaccinated against anthrax. Look, you saw what happened in 2001. Um, Bioport went on to become Emergent Biosolutions and was one of the companies involved in Operation Warp Speed. Of course, the U.S. military uh, operation to warp speed the completely untested vaccines, mRNA vaccines, into the veins of the American population and ultimately the people around the globe. So yes, there is a definite through line, a con connecting through line, a historical continuity between the events that were developing around the death of David Kelly and the, uh, the emergence of the biosecurity grid and what we have seen over the past few years involving many of the same players and many of the same companies that were involved at the time of Kelly's death. Oh, what a rabbit hole it is, and how deep it goes into the heart of the times that we're living through. But let's follow up on some of the information from that particular conversation. As I hope you know by now, of course, all of the information cited in today's episode will be linked up in the show notes at today's episode on CorbettReport.com, specifically CorbettReport.com slash David Kelly for this 
episode 447. And by time index, you'll be able to see every single article, every video, everything that's being played and cited here, including more information about what I was talking about there with regards to the MI5 letter, for example. And if you want more information about the tell-all book that was apparently in the works, well, we can get some indication of that from a Times article that was written back in September of 2003 that revealed some information about that. For example, going through his emails, David Kelly's emails from around the time of his untimely demise, uh, you had this quote, uh, among other paperwork removed from his home were emails from Victoria Rodham, commissioning editor at One World Publications based in Oxford, which indicated Dr. Kelly was planning to contribute to a book. She wrote on July 10th, I just wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that when all this has died down and when you have more time, of course, it would be good to meet up and talk again about book projects in light of recent events. I think the time is ripe now more than ever for a title which addresses the relationship between government policy and war. I'm sure you would agree. I'd be delighted, be delighted to talk over any projects you may be thinking of developing at any point. Just let me know, end quote. Which makes it sort of up in the air. It doesn't sound like anything had been specifically planned, but um, there were other indications, as I alluded to, and as I'll document shortly, that showed that he was working with other authors and uh, potential book deals. But uh, more information on Victoria Rodham and One World Publications, what on earth is this, can be garnered from a uh, 2015, uh, sorry, a 2003 article called Dr. David Kelly, The Baha'i and Masons, talking about some other interesting aspects of the David Kelly story. Uh, quote, we've discussed Kelly's disgraceful treatment by the UK's Ministry of Defense, the resentment that must have fostered making him a security risk. Uh, this was exacerbated by Kelly's discussions with commissioning agent Victoria Rodham about writing a book, or at least contributing to an anthology of the many facets of government and industry involvement in biowarfare programs. It could only have heightened concerns in some quarters that Rodham's publishing company, One World Publications, specializes in works of Islamic scholars and authors. Kelly, some four years earlier, had converted to the Baha'i faith, a minority branch of Islam, apparently under the influence of Mai Peterson, a U.S. Army linguist and intelligence operative. Peterson was one of several women Kelly evidently considered confidants as he had extensive correspondence with them. And this goes into more detail about some of his other confidants, but that's sort of the meat and potatoes of One World Publications, an Islamic publisher. Why are they talking to Kelly? Oh, he's Baha'i. Baha'i? Really? Well, apparently, uh, about four years before his death, he had officially registered, as I believe they call it in the Baha'i faith, as a Baha'i um, faithful. And uh, this was under the influence, as we are told in his biography of Mai Peterson, an interesting intelligence-related figure that pops up in the story. And according to some, this is the real conspiracy. Oh, you know, he wasn't killing himself about 45 minutes and all that. No, it was about the coming revelation of his affair with my Peterson. Okay, more to say about that, I suppose. But at any rate, I'm putting this all on the record because these are different sort of ideas of uh, where this rabbit hole may or may not lead. Some people put emphasis on the Baha'i faith. Uh, I think that's more incidental to Kelly's biography, but I'm willing to be convinced otherwise. Uh, the Mason in the title of that article refers to the fact that um, infamously, uh, at least among people who followed the case, the Thames Valley Police investigation into Kelly's death was called Operation Mason and involved such things as obviously removing various samples from his home, never explained what they were, or what bearing they had on the case, but also even his wallpaper and other such things. Uh, did you know that 
David Kelly's dental records were stolen shortly before his death and then replaced shortly after his death. Other such weird anomalies surrounding Operation Mason. Well, why is it called Operation Mason? Could be It could be important, but it could just be another conspiracy rabbit hole that they like to throw out to confuse researchers. At any rate, I report you decide, as they say, right? So I'll uh, throw in the links to find out more information about that. More information about the book claim and the fact that it wasn't just one world publication and wasn't just Victoria Rodham. It was also, well, according to Gordon Thomas in the Anthrax War documentary that I've cited a couple of times here today, uh, Gordon Thomas says he was one of two or three writers who were approached by Kelly about the possibility of writing a book. And Gordon Thomas apparently said to him, well, you know, you're under the Official Secrets Act. Uh, and Kelly apparently rejoined that he was looking for someone else. He was going to feed the information and someone else would write it. And uh, to which, apparently, Gordon Thomas said, David, you won't get away with it, or at least in his telling of this. Now, is Gordon Thomas necessarily the most reliable of witnesses here? Well, again, I'll let you come to your own decision on that. Uh, I will include a link to a article with some information about David Kelly called The Secret World of David Ke Dr. David Kelly by Gordon Thomas that has been posted up online and that offers some bullet points, some intriguing points of the story. Although I will note that his bullet points, to people who have really actually done a bit of research on David Kelly and his career, are it doesn't instill a lot of confidence in me that Gordon Thomas is necessarily the crackest of researchers because there's Definitely not a lot of detail, certainly no sources cited in this article, and some things that are flatly contradicted by other research. Um, for example, uh, Gordon Thomas notes correctly, I think, that David Kelly certainly did have links to Mossad and Israeli intelligence, as well as MI6, as well as CIA. He was certainly in that world and in those circles, but specifically he cites a meeting that came in April of 1995 with Mossad um, between MI6 officers and Kelly and... FBI and Canadian secret intelligence in New York. And uh, in Gordon Thomas's telling, this involved Mossad uh, presenting information about 32 tons of growth, bacterial growth medium that was purchased by Iraq from Montreal. Uh, at any rate, that is flatly contradicted by a book called Dark Actors, The Life and Death of David Kelly, which I'll have more to say on at the end of this episode. Um, which on page 259, 260 has its own account of that meeting um, in New York, yes, and between Mossad and various UN uh, unscum, unscum uh, weapons inspectors, uh, including Kelly, at which Mossad presented evidence of not 32, but 22 tons of growth medium that had been purchased not from Montreal, but from Basingstoke in the UK from a company called Oxoid. And as Robert Lewis contextualizes in this. That was a deal. He talked to some of the people who were involved in that specific transaction at Oxoid in the late 1980s, who confirmed the transaction and what was going on there, and the fact that, oh, by the way, you better believe Porton Down was involved in, was aware of, and involved in approving that transaction, because you don't just export not just a, some liters or just a ton, 22 tons of bacterial growth medium to a foreign country that, without understanding what they are doing with that. Um, they're not um, pl playing tiddlywinks with it. Uh, no, it's part of a biological warfare program. The British were aware, Porton Down was aware. At that time in the late 1980s, as the chief microbiologist at Porton Down, you better believe David Kelly was at the very least aware of that transaction, if not actively involved in vetting and approving it. And 
in the Dark Actors book, uh, Robert Lewis makes the point that uh, not only was David Kelly already aware of this information that Mossad was briefing the UN inspectors on in the mid-1990s, but uh, not only was he potentially actually involved in that transaction, but Mossad was presenting documents, in a paper trail, including um, credits uh, uh, that had been garnered for it in order to make the purchase, etc., that didn't exist. <laughs> According to the sales reps that were actually involved in the actual transaction itself, specifically, cash had been used in the transaction specifically to avoid some of that financial paper trail that Mossad was then presenting years later. So how did they fabricate that? Well, anyway, whatever. Um, but Gordon Thomas makes that sound as if David Kelly was working for Mossad. Well, that that doesn't follow, at least from that incident. Again, as I say, there are links there, and David Kelly was eyeball deep in spook world and had links to all sorts of intelligence agencies. So there's probably much more to say about that. But anyway, take that for what it's worth. It's, that's Gordon Thomas's account. All of this is to say, however, that of course, yes, as we have known for many, many years, David Kelly was murdered. He was not, he did not commit suicide. But also, yes, it is important to get truth and justice about the death of David Kelly and to know who murdered him and why and to get to the bottom of those details. That is important. That remains the ultimate goal. And, of course, it's not only for the historical record and knowing the truth and actually achieving justice, but also it obviously impinges on the world that we are living in right now and the biosecurity state and all of this. This is part of that, I want to say, living history, in some cases murdered history, that leads us to the point we are in 2023. This is all part of a, a long thread of evidence. And if you really want to start pulling that thread apart, you can, of course, not just dissect David Kelly's death, but the death of the many, many, many other microbiologists and people in David Kelly's line of work that turned up mysteriously dead by suicide or accident under various circumstances. And there are a number of things that you can look at with regards to that. There's one article, for example, I'll throw in The Strange Deaths of Dr. David Kelly's Colleagues, which frames it specifically around David Kelly and what he was involved in. Um, there's another somewhat more detailed article called The Deaths of Five Microbiologists' Murder-Suicide-Accident? question mark, um, Which goes into more. There are many, many more lists of these and many more interesting anecdotes that you can find. It turns out that when you were working with these types of secrets in particular, um, I won't say it's inevitable, but there are the, the chances of your passing away peacefully at the ripe old age of 99 from natural causes seems to be somewhat lower than the average person, at least uh, from some of the various anecdotes that are said. So yeah, it perhaps is not surprising that David Kelly also ended up dying under highly suspicious circumstances, but that doesn't necessarily at base, it does not mean necessarily that David Kelly was a valiant whistleblower who was about to tell all. Maybe he was. Maybe that's what those book deal ramblings were about. Maybe he was pursuing that. But what was he going to say? And would it have continued to parrot the company line, as it were? Yes, these horrible biological agents that the Ruskies and the Iraqis and others have is a bigger threat than we've ever known. Maybe. Um, so what really was being covered up and what secrets did Kelly know that he took to the grave with him? Well, that's exactly the point of a murder like this is that we have to sit on the outside speculating. Of course, that means there is a very dark rabbit hole to explore full of dark actors and full of fa false rabbit trails and misinformation and real information as well. And it's up to all of us to sort through it. So 
As I said, there is going to be a ton of show notes today, lots and lots of links to lots of information to get you started. And as I said before, uh, one of the sources that I'll cite here and that I'll direct you your attention towards with a big caveat is Dark Actors, The Life and Death of David Kelly by Robert Lewis. This was published back in 2013. And it does provide a lot of details of a lot of different parts of David Kelly's career. So there's definitely stuff to dig into here. Um, and there's some good information. But it's extremely interesting that for a book that for the first 350 or so pages of its 400 page length, it's a fairly conspiracy realist book. And it's not out there. It's very balanced and level-headed, but it certainly definitely makes the point that, no, this suicide suicide does not add up. Um, it does not make physical sense. It's contradicted by this and this and this and this data point. And then it goes through hundreds of pages talking about the dark actors that Kelly was engaged with throughout his career and his uh, life and what he was doing and some of the dark things that he was involved in one way or another and that he was helping to defend. And then it takes a hard, sharp pivot in the last chapter to go, and he yeah, he probably did kill himself because of my Peterson. Anyway, bye-bye. It's, it's such a weird, hard, sharp turn at the end that I am forced to let, uh, speculate that I wonder what tap on the shoulder Robert Lewis might have had at the end of this book. Maybe, whatever, maybe he genuinely believes that, but he certainly didn't set it up very well if that is his ultimate conclusion. Anyway, as I say, I'll throw the link in to the archive.org version so you can go read that at your pleasure, at your leisure, and come to your own conclusions about it. Um, but there's a lot more information along these lines. And as I say, I think this is very important to the world that we are living through right now. So I invite you to help explore this rabbit hole with me. I'm looking forward to seeing what you guys dig up out there. And uh, as always, you can go to CorbettReport.com slash David Kelly for all of the voluminous research material that has informed this particular podcast and to leave your own material in the comment section. But that's going to do it for this edition of the Corbett Report podcast. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the near future.